But this morning, what I'd like to do, I want us to uh, spend some time thinking about prayer and fasting, that particular spiritual discipline, that spiritual practice. I'm going to say some things that may sound familiar. I'm going to say some things that may not sound familiar, and that both of those are okay. One of the things that I am very, very keen on is the fact that in the scriptures, you seem to see certain things repeated often. Do you find that? Okay. When I read the book of Jeremiah, I thought, man, oh man, I could have condensed this into cliff notes and had two, cha- or two chapters or three pages of stuff. And there's like, you know, 50 chapters in Jeremiah, you know, and I'm thinking he had a lot to say, but you just see a lot of things repeated. One of the phrases that is, or words that's used often in scripture in the Old Testament is the word remember. Okay. That in itself is a practice. Because if you are like me, you find yourself in so many situations where you forget. You forget that God was faithful in that moment. You forget that your children actually are your children, or you'd like to forget that. You forget that you have certain things that you've got to get done. The list is long, and you've forgotten half of the things on it. So remember becomes significant in our lives. In the world we live in now, with age getting greater, for many people, that word is incredibly significant. You may know people that are dealing with memory issues. But I believe that spiritually, we may all have memory issues. Because we easily forget that we serve and love a God that loved us first. That cared about us first. So this morning, what I'd like us to do is think about these two ideas of fasting and prayer and Again, you may have heard some of these things before, and that's okay. Because if remembering is good, that means reminders are good too. Because we somehow have to connect again with things that, like Brett said last week, are not just basic things, but are foundational things. Okay? If you didn't catch that in last week's sermon, write that down. That's a good thing to think about. Okay? But I'm going to do this. I'm going to read the text. The text comes out of Matthew 6. If you have a phone with your Bible on it, that'd be great. You can follow along. It's going to go up on the screen here, I think. It may not. And if it doesn't, that's all right. But here's the big deal that I'm going to say right now. I'm going to read it out loud. And one of the practices that I think all of us can probably continue to press into is the practice of listening So as I read the scripture and read the text to you, I'm going to ask that you really try to pay attention to your ears, to hearing. What is it that you are hearing from this passage? And maybe just as we kind of think about this, just allow the Holy Spirit to take your ears to the thing that he wants you to hear from this text this morning. And I'll say it out the gate here. That may very well be the most significant thing that you hear this morning. I'm going to say a lot of things, but that idea of what is it that the Holy Spirit is actually saying to you from this text, that could be the thing. So my ego is large enough that I'd love for you all to go away and say, man, oh man, I've got like 14 things from what he said that were great. I know 
that God has something greater than anything I could say. Okay? So listen to the text. It's from Matthew 6. It kind of starts out right at the beginning. We read verse 1, and then I'm going to start at verse 5, and I'm going to just read through. So here it goes. And at the end, it'll be a little quiet, and I'm going to pray then. Okay? So that's, that's the drill for right now. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would take the word of revelation that you have given to us and that you would implant it in those places that are appropriate in our lives. That it would move to the places of the deep interior space of our hearts. That it would begin to move in the places of our desires, in the places of our motives, in the places of our needs and wants. And that from that place, Lord, you'd begin to help us to live 
out of that place of your word, even today. I thank you for this people that are gathered here today. And may your Holy Spirit just move in their lives in the right ways, the ways that you deem appropriate. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> I know I've screwed this all up because I've been out of camera. But maybe that's intentional. Who knows? I've heard the camera adds 10 pounds. I'm looking for a camera that will reduce me by like 50. And then we'll be in good shape. When I think about this uh, idea of prayer and fasting... They're really kind of lumped together throughout uh, many disciplines. Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The reason for that is, is that there is a connection that both are about somehow connecting with God in a deeper way. Okay? When I was growing up, my father uh, was a surgeon. Okay? He, uh, he operated on people. He was a cancer surgeon. He uh, took out tumors and did things like that. Every morning, in my recollection, I would go down into our kitchen and there was this large rocking chair that my father sat in and he would have his Bible open on his lap and he had been uh, reading the scriptures and praying in that time. And I thought, how fascinating it is. I just want a bowl of cereal and he's doing this other thing. And it was before I was up and he was doing this. And I realized, you know, my dad was a busy guy. You know, when you're operating on people, there is a sense of urgency and also a sense of uh, weight to it. And, uh, you know, it was a little frightening to have him in the home because when you got sick, you weren't sure how he was going to deal with it. Uh, I tried to avoid him as much as possible for things like the common cold because he had knives. Um, and so things like that were kind of part, but this practice that he had every morning. I remember one morning going over and I grabbed out of my dad's Bible, just, I was kind of looking to see where he was reading. And I, I can't even remember where it was, but out fell this card that he had with all these names on this card. And I realized that, okay, these are people I know saw my mom's name, I saw my brother's and sister's name, I saw a friend's name, I saw people, you know, that he kind of worked with. I just saw all these names on this card. And uh, I didn't think a whole lot of, of it when I was in elementary school. I put the card back in, laid his Bible back down, went back up, got ready and went to school. My parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary a long time ago now. Uh, and I remember we went to Minnesota where they were living at the time to visit them in January. Just to tip, don't go to Minnesota in January. Okay, it's frighteningly cold, okay. And so uh, I showed up at the house or at, when we were staying with my mom and dad. And I remember going down one morning and there was his Bible out next to this rocking chair in the morning. Now, you know, I was leisurely about this thing, but he had been there already. And I, again, nosy person that I am, I wanted to see where he was reading, so I kind of opened it up and kind of looked where the little uh, piece of ribbon is and found where he was reading, and I think he was reading somewhere in Isaiah. And out fell this three-by-five card, and I'm looking at this card, and I'm going back, and I'm looking, there are all those names again. There's some other names that are added, and stuff like that, and I'm thinking, 
for the last 40 so, so many years of my life, my dad's been doing the same thing every morning. He's been practicing something. And I saw my name on that list, and I realized that for the last 40 years, every morning, my dad has been taking me into the presence of Jesus with him. You see, practices aren't just about us. They deal with us. But they deal with us in a way that we would be better in this world. That we would be more in this world. And the one thing that you realize is that this isn't about me doing a great job. It's about me connecting. Me connecting with Jesus. So in this passage, several things you, you kind of notice. And the first thing that I want to say is motives matter when you do spiritual practices. Motives matter. And for some of us, that's a big deal because we may get a little twisted in our motives when we're doing spiritual practices. And Jesus speaks to that. He says, beware. Beware of practices that are done for the sake of the crowd. And in some ways, what Jesus is describing here of the hypocrites, that is a theatrical term. It has to do with people wearing a mask in a play. So for a lot of us, we can look and say life is theater. And I'm just wearing the right mask for the right occasion. For the right play, for the right role. In the spiritual realm, we call that not just playing a role, we call it hypocrisy. And the word has every bit of negative connotation you can imagine it's supposed to have. Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. Those that are acting the part. And what happens when you act the part with spiritual practices is that you are using spiritual practices to somehow manipulate the perception of others around you. I read my Bible every day. I spend an hour in prayer daily. And it's so easy for it just to very, very slowly shift into a place where the motive becomes more about you becoming the star than God becoming the star of this show. The spotlight in spiritual practices takes us from the place of being in the center to putting God in the center. Motives matter. So when you think about these spiritual practices that you're going to go through, you have to understand this is not theater. This is life. That you are doing these that you might live better, not that you just might act better in the play. 
And the two, one, the two spiritual practices that we're going to deal with this morning, I'm going to reverse them as, in terms of what the text says. I want to talk about fasting first. And in these places, we, we understand that fasting for a lot of us is the, it's the unknown one. If I say prayer, most of us are familiar with that. How many would say I'm familiar with prayer? Okay. Now, some of you may have a practice of fasting. When I talk about fasting, I'm talking about it from the standpoint of spirituality and particularly Christian spirituality. Because there are many religions that will practice fasting. Okay? And there are many other reasons that people fast. Again, we get back to motive. Some people fast because they are going on a diet. So fast and diet have become synonymous terms. That isn't what we're talking about. We're not talking about going on a diet. Okay? This is not talking about going on a hunger strike to make some point. Okay? This is Christian spiritual fasting, which pretty much has to do with you abstaining from food that you might be more attached to Jesus. And here's the deal food is kind of like a necessity. You, you really can't live for a long time without eating. Now, I will say this, obviously when Jesus is in the desert for 40 days or Moses is in the desert for 40 days or Elijah is in the desert for 40 days and they're traveling along and not eating, you at least know that somewhere in that frame of 40 days you can go pretty long without eating anything. Some of you just don't believe that. I know. You sit there and you say, I can't go longer than like the next meal. I, I got to have lunch. Who's taking me to lunch? But you can go longer than you may think you can go. Your body can sustain you. It's built to go longer without food than you might realize. But the point is that you are fasting so that you might be further engaged with God. So the purpose of fasting, first of all, has to do with making you more available to God. Okay? That's just... One purpose. Another purpose is that it is reminding you that you come to God and in that place of fasting that you are vulnerable because as you fast, one of the things that kind of accompanies fasting is an energy flow. Okay? I'm talking about the actual practice. You, there are moments of high energy, but by the end of a 40-day fast, you're feeling pretty weak, okay? There's a weakness that kind of comes with not eating, okay? In the very short term, it happens often. I'm just like, man, I need, I need a meal. I just don't have any energy. So it puts you in a place of vulnerability, and it's a fascinating thing about how often vulnerability is one of the things that God would want from us when we come to him. But it also reminds us of dependence, so that in that place of vulnerability, when I look 
at fasting, I realize that when I fast, I am sustained by nourishment that comes from another place. Okay? So when you fast, you come and you get to nurture that sense of vulnerability, but you also get to nurture the sense of dependence on the God who sustains you, on what really nourishes your life. And that's one of the fallacies we live with, is that life is sustained by food. Let me tell you something right out of the gate. Life was never the sustaining power, or food was never the sustaining power to life. Never was. In fact, when... Satan tempts Jesus at the end of his 40 days. He says, turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say to him? He quotes the scripture and he says, man does not live by bread alone. Okay, that doesn't mean that eating isn't significant. Your body needs it and all those kinds of things. But that's not what sustains you. God is the one that holds your life in his hand. You can be eating three meals a day and your life can end. Still. Okay? That which sustains us is the God that created us. So fasting reminds us, much like Sabbath does, that when we stop eating, life doesn't end. In Sabbath, when you stop working, the world still spins on its axis. Some of you don't believe that either. Some of you think that if I stop, everything around me is going to die. It's all stopping if I stop. I've just got one more thing to do, and if I don't do it, nobody else will. You ever said that? Okay. Well, here's the deal. You stop, and the amazing thing is things get done still. Wow. Remarkable. You stop eating, guess what? Somehow, you woke up another day. Wow, that's amazing too. The last thing is that, about fasting that I just want you to think about is that in fasting, I practice saying no to one thing, to the one thing of food. So that I might say yes to God and to others. I say no to this so that I might say yes to this. That's a hard one. If you have a hard time saying no and you want to just kind of fit everything in, it's tough. But oftentimes we have so many things that we have allowed to enter in. And the thoughts about food, because it is so necessary to your physical body, can just be overwhelming. It can produce major distraction. In fact, in the midst of fasting, oftentimes you find that the thoughts about food just become more prevalent. You think, you know, I'm going to do this practice. I'm going to go fast. God's going to be with me. It's going to be wonderful. And all of a sudden I do it. And, and what I discover is, is that I'm hungrier now than I ever was before I fasted. You know, I'm finding the thoughts about food just 
bombarding me. Because in those places, what we begin to realize is how much those kinds of things can be controlling us. Thoughts about food. I just say the word and some of you are thinking about it. I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. Where are we going after this? Okay. It's good to have a plan. But see, the thing is, is that those kinds of thoughts can be the very thing that distract you from really attending to God. So fasting, I'm intentionally pressing into this place of saying, I am going to say no to this meal, to this physical meal, that I might feast and say yes to the meal that God provides for me. So it doesn't have to be this kind of thing that's just, oh, it's all about deprivation. I don't get to eat anything. Life is miserable. Okay? You get to feast on the one who gave his life as bread to you. That table over there. There sit those little cups that represent something. That life poured out for you. All that comes from the hand of God, from his own storehouse to sustain you. So there's a sense of what fasting is and what it's there for. And I'm just going to say real briefly, you move from a purpose, some of the purposes that you find in fasting, to this sense of what, so how do I do this? Well, the first thing I want to say is do something, start out of the gate with something realistic. Some of you are sitting there going, 40 days, you can never do 40 days. I can barely do 15 minutes without some food. I got to have a snack. What I suggest is take a meal. Doesn't need to be today's meal because you've already planned where you're going. But take a meal and just move into a place of saying, no to that meal that you might say yes to God and then use that time that you would normally use for eating to pray and to just enjoy the Lord and be with him and let him be with you. And maybe you do that just once this week and then maybe next week you say, I'm going to do a couple times this week where I kind of just say I'm going to fast that meal for some of you your schedule permits and it's easier to do that for some of you it's a little harder you're going out to a business meal or something like it well realize that whatever the practice that you're going to be told about these next five weeks it takes some discipline it would not be called a spiritual discipline if it were easy It takes some effort. It takes some intentionality. You have to be able to go back and say, where in my schedule am I going to do this? And for some of us, that's a really uncomfortable question. Because it's easy to talk theory with you all. Much more difficult to talk about what is it doing to my schedule? How is it affecting that? 
So one of the questions you might want to ask is, when you hear these practices, this practice of fasting, you have to ask the question, so where might I put that in my schedule in an intentional manner and do that? You're going to have a chance later on just to consider that. Now, I'm not saying you have to fast. I'm saying you might need to consider that, and you may feel this sense of resistance to it, and that could very well be the sense of the Holy Spirit pressing into your life in a way that you need to listen and pay attention to. So don't just blow it off. Pay attention. Okay? And the second thing is just make sure that when you take that time to fast, whatever it is, just a day, a, a meal, however you start, start in that small space, but use that space for what it is intended for then, which is to draw you further into relationship with Jesus. Whatever means that you might bring to that. Last week, Brett talked about meditation on Scripture. Okay? Reading, studying Scripture, meditating on it. That can be a great thing to do in that space you create. Okay? The author Henry Nouwen made a great statement about spiritual disciplines because so many people look at spiritual disciplines and they just say, man, that's just one more list of things to do. I've got a list. I don't need God's list too. Okay? What I want to suggest is maybe listening to this definition and rethinking how you see these disciplines. Disciplines aren't about doing things so you make God happy. That's not what it's about. Disciplines just create space in your life for God to work in your life. That's all you're doing. Through a discipline, whatever the particular discipline is, in this case fasting, you're just creating space for God to do things in you that are transformative by giving that space to him. Allowing him to enter that space and do with that space what is most appropriate during that time. Fasting is creating space. Both physically in a sense, but definitely spiritually. Second thing is prayer. And as we come to prayer, Jesus makes a comment. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love, life is theater. They love to stand on, in the synagogues and they love to stand on the corners and they love to pray. Some of you, that would be the most frightening thing you could ever think of. Please don't make me stand up and pray anywhere. You have to understand that for a, a Jewish person in the time of Jesus, prayer oftentimes you stood while you prayed. Okay, out of respect, out of a sense of reverence. And so in the synagogue, you might be doing that. But prayer was often communal, too. So it wasn't just you standing. It was a lot of other people standing, too. So here you are. You're told this isn't about whether everybody's looking at you and kind of going, man, they are fervently praying over that. I can tell. Wow. The other picture of prayer is the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, where the tax collector comes in and falls on his face before God and he begins to pray and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee stands over on the side and he's standing over watching this guy and saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. 
I mean, obviously he has issues. And I'm so glad that I'm above that. And Jesus says, so who walks out of the place justified? And they say, well, the guy who prayed for mercy. It's an obvious little play there. But for us, when we sit and stand in a place where we want to call attention to whatever we're doing that's spiritual, it becomes diminished. So when you practice prayer, Jesus says, go into your inner room. So what's the atmosphere of the inner room? Well, the atmosphere of the inner room is a place that it's hidden to everybody but God. So you're not going to make a show for everybody else. Or this isn't about you going in and making sure people see how spiritual you are by praying. It's about you finding the right audience. And the right audience in prayer is always God, is always the Father. And it says you're going into the Father who is unseen. So first of all, you are in a sense identifying with that by moving into the place that's unseen. The hypocrite stands out there because he wants to be seen. The person of true prayer is moving to the unseen place to identify with the Father who is unseen. And in that place, he's allowing that Father who is unseen to completely see him and completely know him. One of the things that is the struggle, I think, for us is that most of us, if not everyone in this room, does not want to just be disregarded and dismissed. You want to be seen and you want to be known. And the very cool thing is that rather than you having to put on some elaborate costume so people see you and know you and that somehow they think that this elaborate costume is actually you, you get to move into a place where you can remove the elaborate costume and be who you are, fully seen and fully known. And in that place, that atmosphere is the atmosphere of a father who loves you deeply. So imagine for a moment that you're not going in to try to gain love by wearing the right costume and making people feel like you're okay. You're moving into a place where the father sees you as you are, truly, authentically, and he loves you. He loves you just like that. Now, does that mean that he doesn't see more that you might become? No. He sees all sorts of things you might become. But you come into a place where you are fully loved. And he sees it all in that place. So understand that you're not going into a room where when you stand before the Father, he's going to sit there and he said, you know, I was watching you today and you messed up pretty bad. You just screwed life up royally. And some of us, that's the perception we have when we enter those very private places with God. It's frightening because we know what we're like. 
And we imagine how could anybody really love us and how could God love us the way we are? And the remarkable thing is he does. Isn't that remarkable? Remarkable enough that Jesus would die on a cross because he loved you that much. Even as messed up as your life might be. And some of us will look and we'll say, well, I'm not that messed up. Oh, my. Trust me. We're all deeply broken. And in that brokenness, whatever that manifestation of brokenness in your life is, the Father embraces you in that place that you might be healed. Not that you might be condemned. That you might be loved. You enter an inner room. And it's fascinating, that little phrase, uh, it said, enter your room. That room was a room in the center of a house that didn't have any windows. Obviously, it had a door. You had to be able to enter. But it really was pretty much inaccessible to all the outside. And that's what Jesus is saying. Move into the space where you're not necessarily accessible to the rest of the world. Where all that that is outside, you're constantly trying to think about. And so that atmosphere is an atmosphere of love in that place. And it's an atmosphere where secrets are exchanged. You you know secrets. When you tell a secret to somebody, it means there's something special going on or something that you know that you don't want everybody else to know. This isn't public knowledge. And it's, it's secret space where God reveals to you his very presence in that secret place. That you can share fully the secrets of your soul. And know that they are in good, trustworthy hands. Remember uh, my daughter when she was at her first pregnancy. Uh, she let us know, you know, she texted me. She said, we're pregnant, you know. And so I'm a grand, I'm grandfather, grandparent. And uh, it, was, it was a big deal, you know. Another life is coming into the world. My daughter's, and my, my wife was ecstatic and everything. I immediately posted on social media, my daughter's pregnant. And then all of a sudden the next text was, please don't tell anyone. And I went, oh, no, this is all over the Internet. And I was desperately trying to figure out how do I erase this? How do I get it off? Because I'd been told a secret, and immediately I told everyone. God's not like that. Okay? And here's the thing. For some of us, that inner room, that secret place that no one can see, has been more so given over to sin than it has been to holiness. And so it's become this repository where we do things that no one can see. And so sometimes it's frightening to go in there because the walls we've painted just don't look pleasant. But in that place, we have to understand that God we, we step in, it's not like we can hide it from God. 
The one who is unseen sees it all. But maybe we need to take that space that we kind of are doing secretive things in, away from God. Maybe we need to flip it around and use that space to be with God and let him work in our lives. Let him bring transformation to the places of brokenness. The atmosphere is pretty incredible in that room, but there's also access. It says, when you pray, go into your inner room. First of all, you need to understand prayer is not passive. There's movement going on. You're moving into this place. Move into your inner room, okay? And that means you gotta leave the outer room. Any of you ever find it difficult to leave the party because you just don't want to miss anything? Okay? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough call. I got to leave this? Something may happen that I want to be there for. How, how do I do that? Well, man up. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's tough, but it is what Jesus calls you to. Go into this inner room means that you've got to leave. You've got to say Yes to one thing and no to something else. And then he follows it up. He says, not only leaving, but now I want you to shut the door. I remember reading that and going, oh, you mean I can't kind of stand in the door jam and kind of enjoy this over here and enjoy the other part too? And it's like Jesus is saying, no, go in and shut the door. Really? I gotta be alone in there with you. Oh my. Okay, this is big. The thing is, in that place, when we leave the door open, we tend to be people that just are easily, easily distracted. Okay? So access to the inner room is about leaving the outer room and about shutting the door. And in shutting the door, what I've done is basically said, this is exclusive space and time devoted to one relationship. Wow. Would any of you like exclusive time with God? Think that'd be pretty impressive? Okay. The God of the universe said, come in and shut the door. I don't want to be bothered with a lot of other stuff going on out there. I just want to be with you. What a remarkable thought. I remember I went to, to a White House briefing. Okay? You probably are asking, why would he go to a White House briefing? And seriously, I don't have an answer for you. Um, but I went to a White House briefing. I got invited to go to this thing. And I remember I had that, that kind of uh, television or movie kind of view of what this was. The press is all in these little, like a four rows back or something, and they're all raising their hand. And the guys at the podium, and it's, you know, their cameras sitting there. It was nothing like that. It's in a huge room. There were like 200 people, 150, 200 people in this room. I was way in the very back. George Bush was about, he wasn't very tall from where I was sitting. And maybe not in person either. But whatever the case, I was way in the back. It was just a different thing. But the thing that, about it was, I was let in. I remember I went through security. I went through all these checks. I went, they had, I, 
had my name on a list, all those kinds of things, because I was given access. You need to understand that you've been given access to the very throne room of God and invited to make that an inner room of relationship with him. So access, and the last thing is just the agenda of the inner room. And I'll, I'll say it this way. The, in, the inner room is a place where you get to engage in an intimate conversation that has an economy of words. So Jesus says again, don't be like, and then he doesn't say the hypocrites this time. He says, don't be like the pagans. They love to just kind of babble on lots of words because they think in doing so, somehow they're going to be heard better. It's kind of like, you know, that person that, you know, is on the telephone and said, you know, I, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand. And you yell louder into the telephone to try to make them understand. And it's not about volume. Well, this is not about words. This isn't about how many words you show up with. And oftentimes what we find is in our lists, our long lists that we bring into the inner room and we say, God, okay, so here's the list today, God. You know, I, I'm going to school. I've, I've got certain tests I've got to take. I, I would like to get good grades on those tests. I haven't studied, but I know that you're miraculous. Uh, you can change water into wine. You can change my, my mush of a brain into something actually formed. Uh, but I'm praying. So I've got my list. My list can just be extensive. And if my list isn't long enough, my wife usually has a list that she can add to it. That I go into that room and I say, okay, God, here it is. It's like a shopping list. And I'm going through and giving God all my shopping list. It's my many words. And what I find is because God knows what I need before I ask, this is more about me than it is about him. I'm bringing a list that's more about me than it is about him. So I want to give you a little thought. This is from a man named David Rosage. And I'll say it this way. First of all, I believe that prayer is a dialogue. Eugene Peterson said that prayer is answering speech. In other words, God has said something to us and he says, I'm listening. But the other side of that is, is that when God speaks, what does that mean for us? Are we listening? So David Rasage made this statement. He said, in any good relationship, communication is key. And he said, in that, it is a sense of talking and listening. It's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. But for many of us, that's what prayer, prayer has become. The monologue we have with God. We tell him all our life. We tell him all this stuff. And it seems that he already knows a lot of this stuff. Fascinating that he would know those things. So David Rosage says this. Prayer is a dialogue. And the, most, the one with the most important thing to say should have the most time in the conversation. Who do you imagine might have the most important thing to say when you step into that space with God? 
And if you say, oh, obviously I do, we need to have a conversation after this. Okay? Here's the deal. For many of us, it has become a monologue. And I want to suggest that some of that time that you're in there doesn't mean you have to abandon sharing with God your needs or what you think is of concern or your joys, your sorrows, whatever else. But man, oh man, take some time to be quiet and listen. You want to know one of the great things about your pastor? One of the many. He, and this weekend, it was commented upon by other people other than myself. So these were not people that go to your church either. These were people that he just was engaging with and talking with. Comment was, he's a great listener. That may be a spiritual practice in itself. When you come to prayer, one of the sub-practices under that may be practicing silence so that you can hear what God is speaking in that moment. And that may be through the scriptures. It may be just as the Holy Spirit impresses something on you. But to take time to listen in that moment of prayer. The agenda of prayer is basically paying attention to that conversation. And then Jesus says, okay, so here's a way to pray. And he gives you a whole thing. How many have memorized what we would describe as the Lord's Prayer? Okay? You can say it. I won't make you say it backwards, but I'm sure you could say it forwards. Okay? Five themes that I want you to think of in terms of that prayer that you can carry with you into these other places. First is the theme of praise as you think of prayer. Okay? How are you hallowing or making holy or acknowledging the holiness of God and his character? Great thing to think about as you go into pray. Second thing is surrender. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Anybody like to think that they'd love to just kind of maybe insert different pronouns there? My kingdom come and my will be done. No. This is about surrendering whatever your will is to the Father. It is the very thing that Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prays and says, if there is any way that this, can, this cup can pass from me, please, Father. And then he ends that prayer with this phrase, but not my will, but your will be done. Surrender. That's a hard one. Most of us resist surrender. And even there, there is transformation to be had because in those places of resistance, it gives us opportunity to pay attention and ask the question, why are we resisting? What is it about God that we would choose our will over his? 
And somewhere in that, I think we've skewed things enough to think that somehow God's will is going to be less good for us than our will. But maybe we need to imagine and consider and as we read the scriptures come to terms with the facts that God's will will always be better than our will. Surrender. Dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. Immediately I have made God the source. But I've also had to say you know what? That's daily bread. It's not, you know, God, could you stock the pantry for me? And every day I, am, I come to that place of this is a new day to depend on the resources that God has and the way he wants to provide for me. And when I begin to make the resources the end in themselves, they become easily my God. The bank account that I trust in to make sure I can do the things I want. The house that I have, that I begin to kind of say, this is my castle. The possessions I have, the family I have, all those can be places that I put my dependence and trust in to make my life feel good. And God says, let them go and depend on me. Dependence, forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then Jesus makes some statements for, about forgiveness. He says, for in the way that you forgive others, your Father forgives you. Forgiveness. Are you experiencing that sense that you are forgiven? Because unless you are experiencing that, the part about forgiving others will be nigh impossible. So you better be in a place where you know that each day, as broken as you are, God forgives. And he longs for you to experience that forgiveness in your life. And then, out of that place, that you would be forgiving. For those that have experienced the cross, there is no excuse for not extending the cross to others. And whatever you're holding on by way of resentment, by way of, you know, that person did me something to me that I can't forgive, I'm just... You're holding on to it. It's eating you up inside. It's not healthy for you. And it isn't really an expression of the cross. Forgiveness. And finally, protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That sense of God, when I'm weak, which is all the time, I am prone to step into places I shouldn't. I am much more vulnerable to the temptations of Satan when I am maybe alone, when I am in my own thoughts. I can go all sorts of places. When I'm just hanging out with people, I can be tempted to do all sorts of things that are not of you. Lead me not in those places, but deliver me from the evil one. 
Protect me from the places that Satan would want to destroy my life. Temptation there, that word, is a word that has to do with test. And somehow this is not necessarily the kind of test where God is actually purifying our life as much as it is the test that Satan would bring against us to derail our life. So pay attention. Paul says that where there is temptation, God will give a way of escape. So look when there is temptation and know that the protecting God cares for you in that place. Those are five themes you can walk into prayer with. We're going to close here. I'm going to pray, but then I'm going to do this. I want you to take then, we're going to have a moment of silence. I'll determine how long a moment is. A year is a thousand, or a thousand years is a day to the Lord. I figure that a moment could be something different. So here's the deal. What we're going to do is in the, in the quiet, I want you to think about two things. Now we're getting to that place of schedule and relationships. We're looking at what's my week like now? And I'm going to ask you to think about two things. I'm going to ask you to ask, think about fasting. Where might God be saying, you know what? You can do this. You could begin to put your toe in the water of fasting. You can say no to a meal somewhere in your week. You can say no to multiple meals somewhere in your week. And I want you to think about that. What might God be saying to you about that? And he may not say anything. Know that. This isn't about you doing what I think you should do. You have to pay attention now to what is it that God is pressing in. And then the second thing is about prayer. Where in your life is prayer not just about the crisis that you're in, but an intentional practice so that you might be with Jesus? The guy that mentored me had a phrase, and I like this phrase. He says, prayer is not something you do. It's someone you're with. So where in this week might you set aside just some intentional time to pray? Okay? I'm going to pray just to kind of close out. Band's going to come up, do whatever. And uh, while they're coming up, you're going to be quiet and thinking about it. You might want to write something down. Whatever. Lord, I thank you for today and thank you for the graciousness of these people to listen. And uh, Most of all, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the voice they hear. Especially now, Lord, when it comes to how will we live a life that follows you and not just live a life where we know a lot about you. Help us to know where you're calling us to follow even now. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.